Our Father, we delight to say that it is your world, even as we read in the book of Hebrews, that you brought all things by the word of your power. Father, it was by your will that all things came into being. The angels sing in Revelation 4. Christ, it was through your word that all things were spoken into being. And it is for you all things were created. And it is by you, Holy Spirit, and your power that affected the word of God so that out of nothing came everything. And such is your glory. And now we open your word together as we prepare to celebrate and to remember the grace we've received in the Lord's table, the grace we've received in Christ. Uh, So prepare our hearts, in particular as we look at what you have revealed through the book of Ecclesiastes here in chapter 5. Be our teacher, Holy Spirit, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, as we come back into the book of Ecclesiastes, where we took a little break, as I noted last week, and, and last week we looked at uh, the theology of wealth, and which is a broad overview of how we are as Christians to think about wealth, how we are to think of possessions, because that is exactly where Solomon is going to take us in this passage uh, beginning in chapter, verse 10 of chapter 5. Really, this section goes from verse 10 of chapter 5 all the way down to the end of chapter 6. This morning, we're going to try to cover verses 10 through 20. Verses 10 through 20. Uh, hopefully, we'll get all the way through. That'll be my goal. Let me begin uh, with this as an introduction. It's to remind us that God created us as human beings. God created us as those made in His image with an incredible capacity for intense desire and intense affections, to feel things very deeply, to want things greatly. That's not a bad quality of humans. It's a part of being made in the image of God. We feel strongly about many things, and we desire many things. Those strong desires are not a part of the fall. They are a part of creation. They are a part of God's good creation. The fall merely corrupted this innate capacity for desire, and it brought a change in the things that we desire, the objects of our desire. So the intensity of feeling and affection is not wrong. We should have that. It's godlike. It is the things that we attach our affections to that become a reflection of our fallenness, a reflection of our flesh. It is what displays the corruption that we inherited from our parents, particularly from Adam. In fact, as it's often been said and noted, that the problem is not the intensity of our affections. And indeed, we as Christians very often feel things too lightly. We should feel more powerfully about the things of God than we do and about those things that our affections were designed to attach themselves to. Just compare, in fact, how strongly you feel, even emotionally, about the glory of God and the glory of Christ and the majesty of the gospel and the wonder of grace and the truth of Scripture compared to how you feel, let's say, if you won the lottery or about a host of other earthly things, about a job promotion, about a job loss, about a relationship, about anything of this world. Compare how strongly the things of this world can evoke emotion in you, and yet oftentimes how dull we are in our feelings about the things of God and about the glory of the gospel and about the wonder of Christ. So it isn't the fact that we have strong emotions and affections. Sometimes that's seen as only being a fruit of the fall because we feel so strongly about bad things. But in fact, that is good. It is just a matter of what we attach them to. We should, as Christians, find our most intense affections, our most intense emotions, our most intense desires about the glory of God and the things of the gospel and the promises that we have in Christ. Now, Solomon takes us directly to this issue of our affections Uh, This morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, it is about what our hearts long for and what our hearts love, about the things that stir up in us the greatest response. He takes us directly to the issue of the heart, and particularly the disordered affections for wealth 
that we so often feel in our fallenness, which more broadly speaking is the disordered affections for the things of this world and the problems that that brings. So we're going to look at this in just three broad headings. First is the problem of disordered affections for wealth. Two, the problems, plural, of disordered affections for wealth. And number three, the prosperity of ordered affections for God. Let's read the passage and then we'll look at these a bit more closely. Beginning in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness and with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Tremendous, tremendous address about the affections of our hearts And the idea of possessions and of wealth and the way it can so easily display disordered affections. Now, Solomon transitions in verses 8 through 9, which we've looked at in the past, uh, namely transitions from what he has already begun as a discussion of oppression, an oppression that often comes from the wealthy and from the powerful who abuse the poor. And he transitions from there by noting in verses 8 through 9 of chapter 5 an oppression that happens even in the highest places of civil government, that there is injustice, there is injustice that the powerful bring to the weak. And yet he says in verse 9 that there is yet still a benefit to those whom God has put into power. He says, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. So he ends on an overall positive note, but after noting that there is, with power and with wealth, an advantage that is too often used to oppress and to bring low those who are weaker and those who have less to their name in order to rise up against such oppression. And so now he moves into what really is the motivation, the heart reality, the spiritual reality that produces the kind of grievous injustice that he has just mentioned. And namely, it is the love for wealth. And we could more broadly say it is the disordered affections of the human heart, the disordered loves. So let's note first then the problem of disordered affections. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time here, a little bit less time on the last few, so just be ready for that. The points aren't... uh, Uh, fairly balanced, because this really sets the tone for all of it. This is really the heart of the issue. Everything else is what flows out of this basic principle, this basic reality that he lays out for us, particularly in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. Now, notice what he says. He does not say that He who has wealth will not be satisfied, or he who has abundance will not be satisfied. What is immediately obvious is he addresses he who loves wealth, and he who loves abundance is going to find in that love that it's always going to come up empty. It's never going to give what the heart is desiring from it, namely satisfaction. 
It is very possible, however, to have wealth, even to have great wealth and great possessions and to be thankful for it, to enjoy the fruits of it and yet not find one's identity in it and to not love it. It's possible to have very little and love wealth and to have very much and to not love wealth. So the issue is not the wealth itself. Again, it is the condition of the heart. In fact, in verses 18 through 20, which we just read, he's going to say we are to enjoy life and we are to find pleasure and satisfaction in the thing God gives when they're enjoyed in the right way and for the right reason in an ordered way. So the issue is not wealth. The issue is the love of wealth. The issue is that the deepest part of the soul craves and seeks too often things from wealth that only God can supply. So then what is immediately obvious here and what is the most striking to me in looking at this is he's dealing here with the affections and the language here is language of the affections. And the reason this is so important, because this drives everything that we do. We live by what our hearts desire. As has been noted before in many other kind of ways, and I think uh, a while back I reminded you, uh, I don't have it in front of me, so I'll just have to state it generally, but it was uh, the the old statement of a philosopher who said this, and it was a very true uh, statement, And it is this, that everybody is driven by pleasure. Even the person who commits suicide is driven by a desire for happiness. Even the one who ends his life is driven by the desire to be freed from whatever pain it is that they're suffering. They think they will be in a better condition if they cease to exist. And everything in between there, man is driven by what we believe will make us happy. Everything we do is based on the thought that doing this will bring, will make me happy, will bring me satisfaction. And here he says, he who loves money, he who loves money or silver, literally, the idea is wealth, the idea is possessions, the idea is, he says, abundance in the second part of the verse, he who loves it. This is a very powerful word. It is the same term that was used when God said, As the great commandment of his people, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. In other words, with everything who you are. This love that we are is to reflect the covenant relationship that God's people have with their God is a whole person response to God. And here he's saying this whole person affection of love for some is not on God as it should be, but is on God. Wealth, it is on possessions. Note a second term he says there is to be satisfied with money. Again, this is a term of affections. This is a term of emotion. This is a term of our internal spiritual state. It is what the one who loves money seeks from money, and that is to be satisfied. To be satisfied. The idea of satisfaction, this term is used in a variety of ways, but the, the basic idea is this. It is to have the fulfillment of one's wishes, expectations, or needs. One added, or the pleasure derived from this. To be satisfied is to say, if we seek satisfaction, as I, I find in the thing that I'm seeking after to be completed, to be happy, to want no more, to have a pleasure which only this thing can give me. Now, as I noted then, our affections are a part of being created in the image of God, and they function rightly only then in a right relationship with God. Therefore, to love money, as Solomon identifies for us here, is to have a disordered affection, a disordered affection that's going to bring the chaos inwardly that is the only thing it can bring because it's outside of God's will. If we have these affections, as I already noted, then what are they to be focused on? Well, again, the love that is here being addressed is only rightly given and experienced this kind of strong desire when it's satisfied in the one whom God gave us those desires for, namely himself, himself. These are the two realities that Jesus himself acknowledged are the whole sum of spiritual life, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
If one is born again, if one is a child of God, then that means that they have entered into a new reality. They've entered into a new reality where all of a sudden everything in this world takes on a new meaning. It takes on a new price tag. It takes on a new perception within the human heart. If we look at the world as, a, as an unbeliever, or as someone who is unregenerate, someone who has not experienced that grace of God, then there's a price tag that we put on everything that we see. Everything that we see in the world is now full of a myriad of opportunities and a myriad of options uh, that we can lay hold of to bring us satisfaction. And it could be a variety of things. It can be money, wealth, sex, possessions, power, status, whatever. You fill in the blank. The unregenerate heart looks at the world and says, it is out of these options that lay before me that I find my joy, I find my meaning, I find my purpose, I find my satisfaction. When someone is born again and moved from the state of death to life, all of a sudden those price tags change. There's a new heart. There's a new perception of God as the one from whom all things came. There's a new perception of sin, a new perception of holiness, a new perception of eternity, a new perception of everything. And the heart is awakened to a whole reality that it was blind to before. And the heart then is made to believe in God and to taste of his kindness and the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And all of a sudden, our our attitude for a believer changes towards the things of the world. And so to hear Solomon's words when he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money is to also identify that the one who is in that condition is one who has not yet been made to see and to taste the glory of God. To love money and to love wealth, to love this world is exactly the opposite of love for God. It's impossible to be a believer, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's impossible to be regenerate, to share in the life of God, and to have a love for the world. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. The two cancel each other out. John says this in 1 John chapter 2, that do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he describes the love of the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And John is saying it's incompatible. It's incompatible that somebody should belong to God, in that context, belong to Christ, to share in the life of Christ, and love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you, is the simple statement. Love for wealth, love for possession cancels out love for God, and it cancels out love for neighbor, the two very things that God says are the very definition in the heart of spiritual life and spiritual reality. So it, it goes exactly against the nature of God, the very purpose of our existence, the very reason that we have affections, and everything that God commands for us is evidence of a right relationship with him, namely love to him and love to our neighbor. Love for wealth, love for possessions, love for this world, all of these are included in the idea here, stand in direct contrast to what God requires from us. So to love money, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance, is because it is to be outside of the life of God, it is to be outside of the purposes of God, it is to stand in contradiction to the very design of human nature and the very essence of the covenant. To love wealth and to love money, then, is to be in spiritual death. That is the seriousness of this command. It's not only to be seen in views of what will make us happy or not happy, but in fact, what will give evidence of our spiritual life and what will give evidence of the lack of it. But I want to ask this from another question, and the, the, or from another angle. Ask a question from another angle, and it's this. Though the immediate command here is, and the warning here is about the one who loves money, the question to ask is, why would a person love wealth? Why would a person love wealth? Why would you love wealth? Why would you love the world? Why would you love abundance of possessions? What is it about money? What is it about wealth? What is it about... Abundance. What is it about possessions that can so easily attract the human heart and lead to such a, such a complete giving of ourselves to attain it? 
And I would suggest here the longing is not really for wealth. The longing is not really for wealth. Wealth is merely a means. It's merely a thing. It's a merely a something. And again, one can have it and be righteous or not have it and be righteous, or one can have it and be unrighteous or not have it and be unrighteous. It's not the thing itself. It is the way that we perceive it. It is the thing we want from it. And so the love here isn't so much for wealth. It is rather for this. Again, it is for what we believe that wealth will give us and abundance will give us. What kind of things does wealth promise? It promises power. It promises freedom. It promises indulgence. If we have wealth, we can satisfy every indulgence, every desire for pleasure. It promises to us protection. It promises to us freedom. It promises us status. It promises a variety of things. And and the real issue then is that the the heart that loves wealth is hungering for all of those things that are to be met only in God himself. That's why we have a tendency to hunger for this world or to hunger particularly here for wealth and possessions because it promises to hold out for us all of these wonderful things, but it is a false promise. It is a false promise. And it can never satisfy, and that's really the point. It can never satisfy. Our hearts weren't created to be satisfied with earthly things. Our hearts simply weren't created for that. He says in verse 11 of chapter 3, he's made everything appropriate in its time. He also set eternity in their heart. We have in our heart, basic to our constitution as a human being, a sense of the eternal, a sense of something that exceeds and is superior and greater to anything that this world has to offer. If we have eternity set in our heart, then certainly something that is temporal could never be the ultimate satisfaction of our heart. And yet, how often we seek it, how, how lured we are, how lured we are to idolize the life of the rich and the famous. There's been whole shows. Well, if you grew up in the 80s, or you, maybe you didn't have to grow up in the 80s, but you remember the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Our hearts gravitate to that, to, to look and to see how they live, to look and to see the yachts and the money and the vacations and the homes around the world and the jewelry and the clothes and the prestige that it brings. And our hearts look at that and say there's a seduction to wealth. There's a seduction to wealth. Have you ever driven through an expensive neighborhood and felt a seduction in your heart, a kind of sensuality that pulls on your heart when you look at that and imagine the kind of life that is lived by many of those who have it? A large home and so much to bring seemingly pleasure to the soul. And so there is a seduction to it. There is a kind of sensuality to wealth and to possessions and to those kind of things. But it is a false sensuality and it is a false hope and a false promise. And again, what I want to just note at one point is to say that it goes against the very nature of who we are as made in the image of God. And made in his image, we could only ever find our true satisfaction in him. It could never be out of the things that he made. And this is the very essence of sin. The very essence of sin, then, is to find and believe that I can be happy in something other than God. It's pretty simple, isn't it? But that's it. You think about your week this week. Think about your life and your sins anytime, and hopefully you can remember at least one sin. Uh, This week. Think about the the temptations and the struggles you have. Why do you want the thing that you long for? Why does your heart lust after it? Why does your heart feel this internal draw towards it? Why does it have such a hold on your heart as you think through times of your own sin that righteousness and God and everything else seem to fade into the background and you are locked onto it like a cheetah in the African desert or something, locked onto its prey? And you were going to run after it. Why is that? What was it promising to you? What did you see you would gain in it? What was the end of it that you emotionally felt at that time? You thought that it would bring you something good. 
the idea of the word of God, the idea of repentance, the idea of faithfulness, the idea of holiness. And that moment when we sin seems to us strange, even repulsive at times as something that works against us. And yet that is exactly the opposite, but that is the nature of sin. The desire for sin is because sin promises us something. That is exactly Satan in the garden. Did God say, but God knows that in the day that you eat of it, it will be, you'll be like God. And so what did Eve do? She looked, the pleasing to the eyes, seemed like it'd be good to make one wise. Seemed like a good deal. In other words, everything that was experienced in the garden, every blessing, every promise, every joy, every beauty that she did possess, all of a sudden to her seemed cheap and lacked value. There was something better by what was promised, namely what she could attain for herself. Satisfaction, a joy, a greater sense of life and vitality and experience. If she would only reach out and grab it, and that's what sin does. It promises something. It always promises to hold the key to happiness and satisfaction, to fill us, to make us complete, to meet our deepest desire and longings of heart. That is what is at the heart of every lie of sin. And so this would be the consequence. If we love something that God is not ordained as a proper object of our love because it's other than him, then it is by nature will not bring satisfaction. This is the lie that has deceived so many. This is Romans 1. Worship the creation rather than the creator. So to love wealth or earthly things and manifest a condition of fallenness, and if that is what marks somebody's life as being attractive as being the dominating reality of their desires, then the reality is there is no love for God and there is no spiritual life. There is no evidence of being reconciled. There is only a call for repentance. There's only a call for repentance. So he's dealing here then with the affections of our heart. He's dealing here with identifying one of those lures of this fallen world that can keep men from God. Let me give you a few, just a couple of other, uh, just generally here. A couple of further evidences of our sin that comes from a love of money and that defies the reality of spiritual life. And the first is this, that the love of wealth or the love of possessions or the love of money is a manifestation of pride. You cannot love money and have a humble heart. Love for the world does not come from humility. Love from the, for the world and love for possessions is not going to produce love for your neighbor. It's gonna, it manifests pride. It manifests a heart of pride. It can only come from a heart that has selfish motives. That has selfish motives. Loving wealth will not lead to acts of self-denial and sacrifice for others. It will lead to acts of greed. It will lead to acts of selfishness. It will lead to a heart that's closed off from the needs of others because to sacrifice anything of our own would be a threat and a loss of our own pleasures. I noted last week, it was always interesting being uh, waiting tables that usually the ones that had the greatest outward signs of wealth were the stingiest in giving tips. The one who had the least signs of outward wealth were generally the most generous in what they gave. So loving wealth doesn't lead to acts of self-denial and sacrifice for others. As a matter of fact, James 4 addresses this very thing. And he says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you love wealth, if you love this world, then according to James, you make yourself an enemy of God, an enemy of his purposes, an enemy of his design in this world. If we love wealth and we love possessions, then we are setting ourselves necessarily in opposition to who God is. And it's going to produce all kinds of disorder. In James 4, he says, What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? In other words, you're loving things other than God and you're pursuing them. And in your pursuing them, it's not going to produce unity. It's going to produce chaos. Paul says love is the perfect bond of unity. A lack of love 
is the perfect recipe for disaster and division. And so he says, you lust, you strongly desire, you want, you crave, and you do not have, so you commit murder, and you're envious, and you cannot obtain, so you fight, and you quarrel, and you do not have because you do not ask, and then you do ask, and you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You have disordered affections. And so loving the things in the world is not going to produce unity. It's not going to produce peace. It's not going to produce happiness. It's not ultimately going to satisfy. It's going to bring ruin to you. And here particularly ruin to those who name the name of Christ, the name of God. But under the idea of pride, look at what he says the answer is. Verse 6, he who gives greater grace says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This lusting, this neighing, this thirsting, this seeking, this desiring, this craving inside of you that is for the world, that is not for God, is in fact pride. And that God is opposed to that. And so to love wealth, is the simple point here, is is an expression of great pride, a great exaltation against God. It doesn't see in that wealth a means of blessing to be used for God's glory, but a means of attaining our own desires to be used for our own glory, for our own pleasures, and it's going to bring all manner of disorder. You think throughout the history of the world, maybe in your own life and in some experiences, the violence, the deceit, the betrayal that comes from a love for wealth and a love for money. You think of the ways that people use other people, deceive other people to gain wealth regardless of whatever it costs the other person, whatever damage it brings. Secondly, particularly from a Christian perspective, to love wealth is a denial of the sovereignty and the goodness of God to provide. It's a denial of God's command. It's a denial of the reason that he created the world. It's a denial of our, his purposes for us in this world. But to love wealth is also a denial of the very sovereignty and the goodness of God in all that he has made. Let me read to you just one passage. But he says this in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, make sure, verse 5, make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What can man do to me? The opposite of this kind of greedy love and lusting after wealth is to be content is to have a character free from the love of money. What does he base that contentment on? Because God has said, I will never leave you and forsake you. It is the presence of God. It is the goodness of God. It is the sovereignty of God. It is the provision of God. Then in the heart of a believer that says, I am content with what God has given. I do not want more than what he has given. I'm content. As a matter of fact, if we're thinking rightly, there is a healthy fear that we should have of wealth as Christians. Not only not to love it, but to actually have a healthy concern about its ability to deceive. Listen to Proverbs, verse 30, chapter 30, verse 8. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. That's a healthy desire. It says, Lord, keep me from this insidious tendency to love possessions. I don't want to be hungry. Feed me. Give me this day my daily bread. I don't want to be in want. I don't want to be in in need. I do want to have my needs met, but I don't want to have so much that I would begin to love the things you give rather than you. I don't want to have so much that, that my ease would make me to compromise righteousness and to forget God. I don't want to have so much that my pleasure and my satisfaction would be shifted from the gospel, from service to you, to these things, and that God would fade in the distant in the background. And remember, that is exactly, when we looked at a theology of wealth, what happened to Israel. You're going to come into a great land. You're going to have abundance. You're going to have so much to eat, and you're going to have so much produce. You're going to have so much ease. And what's going to happen? You're going to forget God. 
This is why Jesus says how difficult it is for a rich man to be saved. Why? Because if you're wealthy, what need of God do you have? I have everything I need. I have no pains in life. I have no worries. I have no concerns. I have everything I need. God might be a nice add-on if he's even that. But the idea of the rich man giving up all of that to gain Christ, the eternal life that he came, that he said he wanted, was an unthinkable thing. The loss was too grievous. It was too great. Compared to eternal life, compared to what Christ offered to him, the wealth was just too strong. It was too heavy of a motive. It laid too much of a grasp on his heart and on his affections. And so he went away. He loved money. And I can guess or assure you that he is not this day, unless there was a change, satisfied with his decision and that he regrets it greatly. That the love of money was not worth it. The love of possessions was not worth it. It will only bring problems. And I'm going to wrap it up just with this. So the, it, it manifests a sinful heart. It manifests pride. It manifests a denial of God's goodness and sovereignty. And it only brings problems. If we live outside of God's will, if our affections are outside of God's will... If our desires are outside of what God gave them for, then we can only expect that it's going to bring problems, not satisfaction. Again, this is the lie of sin. It's like the one who's taken by sexual sin. He says, the adulteress comes out, she whispers, she smells nice, she looks beautiful. She speaks of freedom, she speaks of privacy, she speaks of pleasure, a couch that has been made that will delight ourselves all night in everything that comes to our mind and everything that will satisfy our flesh. But he says he does not realize that in the end it'll lead to death, like, a, like an animal to slaughter. But then it's too late. But that's representative not merely of sexual sin, but of all kinds of sin. In the end, it will lead to death, and the love of money will do the same. And so we can't expect to love something other than what God has ordained for us to rightly love, namely himself and righteousness, and not expect consequences. Let me give you one verse, and this leads into the next. Galatians 6, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so there it is. The love of money, one said, grows by what it feeds on. If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness that it leaves. So what is the core issue here? The core issue then is the object of our affections. And so I ask you, I ask myself, What do you love? What do you honestly, and not what you confess intellectually, but when you look at what orders your life and actually directs your life and the choices and the decisions that you make, the question is, what do you love? What do you love? What do you honestly believe will bring you satisfaction? What do you get more excited about, earthly things or heavenly things? Earthly gratification or spiritual gratification? What do we give our thoughts, our times, and our energy to? And you don't need to give an answer. You can just look at your life, and that will answer the question for you. What consumes your thoughts and your energy and your time? Is it spiritual things? Is it heavenly things? Is it the glory of Christ? Or is it earthly things? So if we go, hey, look, I'm not rich and I don't love money, I'm content with where I am, well, that's well enough and that's good and that certainly fits with what Solomon is saying. But the idea goes much deeper than that. The real issue is, are we going to love God or are we going to love something else? It's that simple. And that's really what Solomon is getting at here. Are we going to love something other than God? Well, they said, if we do, then we can expect problems. And that is the second part, and I'll go a little quicker here. The second point, then, is the problems of disordered affections for wealth. The first is the problem of disordered affections, that it is a wrong love. It's a wrong object of our love. The second is the problems, then, that come from it, the problems of disordered affection. Look at verse 11. When good things increase to the one who loves wealth, who pursues it, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their, for, to their owners except to look on? And the first is, when you have more wealth, then you just simply have more people to consume what you have. Simply put, the more you have, the more people and opportunities there are for others to benefit from the fruit of your work. Whether to care for them, if you're an owner and there's employees, 
or to share in the wealth those who simply want to be around you to benefit from what you have. One said this, that the point is that the thing pursued, namely wealth, takes on a life of its own and starts to control the person pursuing it. All the owner can do is stand and watch as the problems gather momentum. There's a lot of examples of this uh, as we see this kind of play itself out in, in the world that we see. I, I, for whatever reason, the first thing that came to my mind, uh, there is a few, but one was Elvis. You might think, what does Elvis have to do with Ecclesiastes 5.11? Well, I always think this. When you see these famous people that they die, I mean, beyond many of the other things that could be said, but when they die, I mean, what a pathetic life at the end. Someone so talented, so good-looking, so attractive, and so, so many opportunities and wealth in the world. And yet, what a pathetic figure at the end of his life. And then dying, bloated, and overweight, surrounded by people who claim to be his friends who let him destroy his life. Why? Because they weren't concerned about the person. They were concerned about how they benefited from the person. Now, that's an extreme example, of course, but it makes the point. And you think of so many of these that have wealth and there's plenty of friends and people around them as long as they have it. And if it's gone, so are the people in the so-called friends. Or where are those friends to step into the life of those who have such fame and wealth to tell them that they're destroying themselves and they need to stop no matter what it costs because you're more valuable than these things that you get and that you have? Well, that's kind of the idea here of Solomon. When you good things increase, those who consume them increase, those who want to be attached to you merely for what they can gain from you. Number 12, number two, it steals rest and contentment when we love wealth. Verse 12, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Now, the idea could be that he can't sleep either because, he, because he's had an excessive indulgence. In other words, he's gorged himself so much on food and wine and other things that he can't sleep. There's like indigestion. He just physically can't. The other idea, and, and probably what Solomon is talking about here, is that the worries of his wealth keep him awake at night. He can't just rest. He can't just rest satisfied in a day's work done because there's concern about tomorrow. There's concern about gaining more. And it's interesting that the same term here, satisfied, is what was in verse 10. The one who loves money will not be satisfied. Here is the same idea in verse 12. The full stomach, it's translated full stomach, is actually the word for satisfied. His satisfaction that he supposedly has in this wealth actually doesn't bring much satisfaction there's the preoccupation of, of fear of losing what you have or desire to gain more. The contrast with a laborer would be this, that look, a full days of honest work that's happy and content with the good things God has given for that day produces rest. To have more is merely to open yourself up to more problems. He looks at verse 13, supports this. There's a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded, or the idea there, the, the term is guarded protected, kept, don't touch my stuff kind of an idea. Any, I'm, I'm, I'm protecting it from anything that would threaten to take away what I have. And he says there are riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. And how foolish, because they can be easily lost. They are uncertain. Verse 14, when those riches were lost through a bad investment, uh, the idea of an evil investment, it doesn't, is the real word there, it doesn't mean evil in the sense of immorally gained. It just means that it has bad results. It brought bad things, is the idea. Through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, and then there was none to support him. There's the danger that all the wealthy have is that it can be taken away. It can go. The reality is that riches are gained are just as easily lost, either by foolishness, weakness, or the providence of God. How many people rise to fame only to be found in the most pathetic conditions years later when the fame is gone? How many? It happens over and over and over. You can become rich through a good investment. You can become poor in a bad investment, and it can all happen in a month. Or it can happen over years. It's uncertain. It's uncertain. So it is foolish to put our hope into it, to love those things that can be so easily lost. As a matter of fact, he says in Proverbs 23, verses 4 through 5, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it, for when you set your eyes on it, it's gone. 
For wealth certainly makes itself wings, and like an eagle that flies towards the heaven, it goes away. It's an elusive dream. It's like the wind. Job said this statement. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job lost his family. He lost his fortune. He lost his children. He lost everything. And that was the Lord's providence in his life. And so here the idea in verse 14 is that the constant worry of losing what one has gained and has put so much of their energy and their identity and their self into this accumulation of wealth, so much hope for the future, so much was invested in it that the fear of losing it is devastating and the reality is even worse. One noted that after the financial crisis in 2008, this, the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's rural, rural, rural and leading families and had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme slit his wrist and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. The list could go on. Their wealth was lost. Their life was over. There was nothing else to live for. Everything that they had invested had been taken away. That's Solomon's point. It can be gone. A bad investment... A Ponzi scheme revealed, your client's money lost, an incredible amount of money, $1.4 billion for the one, why else should I live? So when the loss comes, so does everything the person has built his or her, her life on, and it can be done in a moment. And it doesn't matter anyway. And then all the, the future that you hoped for, all the inheritance you were going to leave your family, all of your name that was going to last is all of a sudden gone. And he goes, even more than that, even death is going to come and it doesn't matter anyway, verse 15. And as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he'll return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And this again is another theme of Solomon, really of all of scripture. It is a mirror of the creation story. God created good, sin brought corruption, there's a futility that's in the world now, so whatever can be gained doesn't really matter, because in the end it's lost. It's gone. You came naked from your mother, you're going to leave the, the world in the same way. Death is the great equalizer. Not only can a bad investment take away wealth, your life is going to end anyway. It has no ability to provide lasting security, and it cannot prevent the certain reality of death. Interestingly, I read a story this week. It was mentioned, so I hunted it down and uh, read it. It's uh, by Leo Tolstoy. It's a short story. Uh, not that fast of a reader to read a normal <laughs> Tolstoy book in one week, but uh, it was a short story, and it was by Tolstoy. And, and the title of it was, How Much Land Does a Man Need? How much land does a man need? And the story goes like this. There were these two sisters. They were having a conversation. One lived in the city. One was a peasant. Uh, the, the husband of the peasant was listening to this conversation uh, that the, the sisters were having. And he says basically, and well, then he Tolstoy notes that the devil was behind him too. Uh, uh, listening to the conversation. And so the man says, well, you know what? If, if a person, it takes place in Russia, uh, if a person had just land, land would be what would make them happy. That would be what gives them purpose. And so Satan basically says, okay, let's tussle about this. I'm gonna give him land and then he'll be in my power. And so as the story goes along, this is a man who keeps accruing more and more land, more and more land, more and more wealth. And so finally he hears of this deal by these people who own massive amounts of land. And the, and the story goes that he goes to them and the deal is this, for a thousand rubles, if he gives them a thousand rubles, he can have as much land as he can cover in one day. And so they go out the next morning, he can't sleep out of anticipation the night before. And so they go up and they go up on a hill 
And on the hill is this chief and other people to observe. And he says, basically, like God said to Abraham, you know, as far as you can see. And they said, well, as far as you can see, you take it. The only deal is this, is you have to return to the same spot that you started from by evening's end. And so the story goes, this man, he goes out and he goes out in one direction as far as he can. And he keeps trying to gauge where he is. And then he goes another direction. And then finally he gets and he realizes he needs to make it back before the sun rises. And so he starts on his journey back, but he's wearied from thirst. He's wearied from hunger. His feet begin to bleed and give out, but he has to get back. He has to get back as the sun is setting. And so finally he goes, but he's at complete exhaustion and he gets back to this place almost to where he is right as the sun is setting and he falls down dead. And here's the moral. His name, I might pronounce it, mispronounce it, but his name is Pahom, Pahom. And he says this, Tolstoy does, Pahom's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but he saw that the blood was flogging from his mouth and Pahom was dead. The Bashkirs, that's the people who own the land, clicked their tongues to show their pity. The very last line of the story is this. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to lie in and buried him there. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. His pursuit of land, his pursuit of these things, and at the end of the day, all he needed was enough to put him in the ground, to be buried, to die, and to rot and decay. And so it is, the futility of it. He says, death is going to come. And what did you give up in all of that time? What kind of relationships were lost? What kind of sacrifices were made? And this is in part, again, the blindness of sin that comes from a preoccupation only with what brings the immediate pleasure. If you want to know, in part, how to battle sin, one is this, follow a sin all the way through. Think of what tempts you. And think to yourself, well, if I do this, what will it produce? What will the end of it be? What will the end of it be immediately? What will the end of it be in five years? What will the end of it be at the end of my life? What will it produce? If I give myself to this thing, what will be the end of it? What will it bring me? Will it bring you satisfaction? You better believe it in the moment. It will. Maybe a lot. It might be great, actually. It might be fantastic. It might be totally pleasurable and meet everything that you want. But guess what? Then come the consequences. Then come the results of it. And then there's an answer for it. And then you stand before God. And this is why Jesus could say in Luke chapter 9 and other places, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Would you have pleasure? Absolutely you'd have pleasure. Could you enjoy the things of the world? Certainly, no question. But here's the question. What's the end of it? What's the result? Jesus says, is it really worth it? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and you forfeit your soul? What have you actually gained in the end? And what would a man, he says, give in exchange for his soul? And then there's a double darkness to it. Listen to what else Solomon says here in verse 17. Throughout his life, not only that, he's toiled after the wind in verse 16. And then in verse 17, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness and with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Not only does he lose much at the end, and if he dies in that condition, he loses everything, his very own soul. But even during life, it brings a misery that could have been prevented. We'll talk about that a little more next week. But it produces a misery. Throughout his life, he eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. During his life, which was only temporary to begin with, he sacrificed the true pleasure, contentment, and enjoyment of life's good to gain something that only robbed him of these joys and that he can't keep in the end anyway. It's a double fullness. Again, such is the deception of sin. Such is the evil and malicious design of our adversary who tantalizes and entices with everything that is designed to do one thing for one end, and that is to destroy our soul. It is a sweet-tasting poison. It's a sweet-tasting poison. So verse 17 he eats in darkness. The idea there most likely is that he eats alone in loneliness, isolation, with vexation, sickness, and anger. That's what it produces. There's another story. Illustrates this in some degree. Uh, it's from uh, Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales, and it's the, the Pardoner's Tale. It's a moral story. And so in this story, in brief, it's another short one. 
But in this story, you have these men who are in a tavern and they hear of a young man who died, a friend of theirs who had died. Uh, death is described as this thief that came and took his life. And he's been doing that in this context because of the plague that was going around. And so they get angry and they bound themselves together. They bind themselves together as brothers and they're going to march off and they're going to defeat death. And so they go to the city where he was last seen and they're going to destroy him. And along their way, they meet an old man who they have a somewhat disrespectful conversation with. But then the old man hears of their quest to go defeat and to kill death. And so he directs them over to a tree and he says, you'll meet with him over there. And they go over there and what do they find? They actually find a treasure. The writer says they find a pile of gold florins. So in other words, a pile of gold coins. They find so much wealth and they're so excited about it. And they, they make a bond uh, a vow together that they are going to split it. But they realize that it's during the day. And so they can't really leave with it during the day. They have to be under the cloak of night or otherwise people will think they stole it. And so they make a pact. They say, well, we're going to stay here. There's three of us. Let's draw lots. And out of these lots, one person will go into town, buy wine and bread and then bring it back. And then we'll leave, you know, in night. We'll go on our journey. Well, so one man is chosen, and he leaves, and he goes on. And the two left behind then consort together, and they go, ah, guess what? Essentially, we get a lot more money if we split it two ways rather than three. So let's make a pact. When he comes back, we'll kill him, and then we'll split it equally between us. Meanwhile, also, while the other person is uh, going into town, he's thinking to himself, wow, uh, having that all to myself is a lot better than only having one third of it to myself. And so he plots how he's going to kill the other two. So he goes out and as he's buying the wine, he first buys poison. And he poisons all of the wine that he's to give to his friends. They're going to drink it, die. And there it goes. Well, the story goes on. This old, this man, this young man, he comes back to where the other two are. And then they're at the tree and they stay true to their plans. They see him coming and they kill him. And they realize, yeah, now there's more for us. We'll split it two ways. And then what do they do to celebrate? They drink the wine. Right? Right? And so then they drink the wine. Story over. Well, he goes on and says a little more, but that's the point. That's the moral of the story. But that's what it does. That's what sin does. That's what a love for wealth does. At the end of the day, it's not going to satisfy. It's going to bring our ruin it's going to make us plot and do evil things that we never would have thought of before. And even if we have it, even if we do, it can, for many, only lead to a life of vexation, sickness, anger, worry, devastation, destruction. Or maybe it doesn't bring all of those things for this world, but in the end, it brings death, and then there's an accountability before God. So we weren't created to love the creation we were created to love the creator. We were created not with disordered affections, but with ordered affections. And when we have ordered affections, then there can be delight and there can be good in the abundance that God gives. And let me just quickly make this last point. That is this, the prosperity then of ordered affections towards God. The prosperity of ordered affections to God. Look at verse 18. Here is what I've seen then. Be good, to be good and fitting, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for, to, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Again, notice in verse 18, or excuse me, verse 19, it is God who gives riches. God who gives them. He gives them his blessing. We looked last time under theology of wealth, how that kind of blessing fit within to the covenant promises of God, within both first creation account in terms of the flourishing and the beauty and the abundance, in terms of the covenant blessings to Israel and particularly both during their time after Sinai, their promises for the future in the millennial kingdom, and even in the eternal state where Christ receives all of the riches and honor and glory. It's his possession to begin with. We read it in Hebrews. But God gives riches. There is a world full of delights and pleasures that we should enjoy rightly and righteously. And here he says God gives riches. It's, again, it's not the riches. It's not the wealth. I'm sure most of us would say I'd rather have plenty than nothing. I don't 
There's no, there's no particular joy in being poor, though the poor can trust God. And he says then, notice that it's God who gives the wealth and it's God who empowers us to enjoy it. God has empowered him to eat. God has given him a reward to receive and to rejoice in with his labor. He says at the end of verse 19, it is the gift of God. It is a good thing that God has given. The greatest tragedy, which we'll look at next week, in part, is that you can have all of these good things and not be able to enjoy them. But even the enjoyment of them is from God. When we have them righteously... And again, this goes with everything. Every good thing that God has made can be had and not enjoyed, and that's the saddest state. To have food and wealth and abundance and yet have no joy, no happiness, because you want them again for the wrong reasons and you want the wrong things from them. But under God, under a sense of his blessing to realize every good thing comes from God and are to be enjoyed for his glory. In that sense, joy in this sense, true spiritual joy has God as its giver because it's God who is at the center. True spiritual joy and possessions can rejoice in God who has given them and then rejoice in the things God has given because God is at the center of it all. And he gets the glory and the praise just as it will be in heaven and the eternal state. It's a lavish place of abundance, riches, and joy, but our perspective is going to be so changed because of the glory of God and being in his presence. We won't care about streets of gold because we'll have no sense in that gold of personal advantage. We'll rejoice in the gold streets and big pearl gates, which now what people would kill for, but there it will be unnoticed other than in the fact that reflects the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God. Everything in his creation will be perceived with right and ordered affections towards God, and they'll be delighted in. And that's a good thing. And we can begin to experience that now when we watch and guard our hearts. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't an enjoyment, as I note, from common grace, again, we noted last time, that God gives even to unbelievers. He gives unbelievers. Somebody can be an unbeliever and enjoy God's good things, can enjoy the things that God gives, But there is a greater joy, a greater grace, and a greater blessing that believers have when living rightly before God. Let's listen to Psalm 17. He says, For from with your hand, O Lord, from men of this world, whose portion is in this life, you fill their bellies with treasure. They're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance with babes. But of the believer, he says this in Psalm 4-7, You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound." There's a gladness that is in Christ that cannot be compared to by anything in this world. When we are walking rightly with God, we say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, after he had a bit of envy by looking at the world and the ease at which they seem to live, the abundance at which they seem to have, the lack of problems, and of course they have a lack of problems. And he says, here I am righteous and I'm suffering, but then we, we noted this, he, he saw the end the accountability that was to come. His heart changed, and then he said this. It was redirected back to who God is. And he says, whom have I in heaven but you and beside you? I desire nothing on earth. Everything on earth is merely a means of worshiping you, of serving you, of delighting in you. But it's you that I long for and you that I desire. How many Christians have a low desire of heaven because they're so happy here? <laughs> That's, that shouldn't be. Well, there's, I've been wanting to get, you're probably wondering, to 1 Timothy 6, 17, uh, but I keep running out of time. We'll get there maybe next week, or 6, verses 17 through 19. But I want to end with this. What is the cry of our heart to be? It is this. Let me leave you with the words of the hymn as we come into the Lord's table. Probably had it in your mind. It says this. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, my truest love, my greatest love, my highest delight, my greatest satisfaction, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. And remember Jesus' words, don't treasure the things on earth that moth and rust can destroy, but put your treasure in heaven, because that can never be taken away. And it is that treasure and that inheritance that we celebrate in the Lord's table. So let's take a moment to pray. Make sure that everybody afterwards, you'll have an opportunity to get one of the little um, prepackaged things that we're using now. Let me pray, 
And then uh, we'll come to the table. Father, thank you for the promises of the gospel. How seductive sin is. Oh, we know it because we fall to it all the time. How sensuously sin presents itself to bring us satisfaction. And yet we know that it leaves us empty and that it brings devastation. Help us to be wise. Help us to understand the glory of Christ so much that sin is less and less. This world is less and less. All of its glittering and all of its shining, all of its seductive beats and its alluring promises fade in the distance in the background of our glorious Christ, our magnificent Savior and eternity with you. Fill our hearts with this. And even as we come to your table, show us where there's sin and disordered affections that we might confess it. Remember that your atonement has paid and brought the condemnation on yourself that we might be freed. Not freed to live according to our own selfish pleasures, but freed to live in righteousness, freed to live to you, freed from the bondage and the slavery of sin to live in light of eternity and the very reason we were made. So encourage our hearts in these things. I pray in the matchless name of Jesus, amen.